Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. People in Honduras and Congo are losing their lives in protests. We'll discuss the repression and the threats the Honduran opposition faces as they attempt to get new presidential elections. Then we find out how the Congolese protesters don't trust President Joseph Kabila to organize new elections. And we'll hear how Kabila's father fought alongside Che Guevara in a BBC report. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Tens of thousands of protesters were in the streets this weekend in Honduras. They want President Juan Orlando Hernandez to step down and not take the oath of office later this month. Honduras's elections in November were found by the OAS to have copious irregularities. Protesters and challengers Salvador Nasrallah want new elections. Honduran activists calling for these elections face real dangers. There's been a month of deadly street clashes and threats, including to a priest I had on this show back in 2010. Father Ishmael Moreno is known as Padre Mello, and he helps run the independent radio station Radio Progreso, and here he is in 2010 calling for fundamental reforms. Frente a este vacío de, de poder y frente a esta ausencia de consensos, lo que necesitamos en Honduras Faced with this power vacuum and this lack of consensus, what we need is we need a negotiating table. We need people to sit down around a table to talk about issues. We need to discuss our agrarian policies. We need to discuss natural resources. We need to discuss the judicial system, human rights, tax policy. And we need these negotiations to happen between diverse sectors of Honduran society. We need the elite to sit down at this table to negotiate, along with representatives of the resistance movement and all sectors of society. Y, y esos mínimos consensos deberán expresarse. And out of these negotiations, we need to have some minimum agreements, some basic points of consensus. We need that around institutionality, governability, around judicial reform, and these need to lead to a constitutional assembly. Pero uno, una Asamblea Nacional Constituyente en donde estén expresados... We need this National Constitutional Assembly to be representative of all sectors of Honduran society, not just one or two, but all sectors of Honduran society. That was Padre Mello of Honduras in 2010. In recent days, an anonymous flyer has been circulating on social media accusing Padre Mello and others of having ties to criminal organizations and drug cartels, of inciting violence and destruction among Hondurans. A group of Jesuits has rallied to support Padre Mello, including my next guest. Matt Ippel is a Jesuit in formation in the USA Midwest province. He's currently an MA candidate at the Jesuit University in Lima, Peru, and spent a lot of time in Honduras over the last 10 years. Thanks a lot for joining us, Matt Ippel. Thank you, Jerome. Glad to be here with you. Um, how did you come to meet uh, Padre Mello? How did you get to know him? So when I was a, a senior in college, I worked for the, the Jesuit conference in Washington, D.C., 
and worked in the Social International Ministries Office, which is now the Office for Justice and Ecology. And um, I had been going to Honduras back and forth, working with an organization uh, there uh, at the time. And uh, they asked me at the Jesuit Conference to focus mainly on on issues related to Honduras. Um, And when I was doing my thesis that year, uh, I went down and spent um, almost a month in between December and January uh, spending Christmas and New Year's there and, and working on my thesis. And the Jesuit I was working for and the, the team I was working for at the Jesuit conference suggested that I meet um, Padre Melo, someone I've been reading a lot about and reading his articles uh, while in D.C. Um, so that's when I met him. And, um, and yeah, from there, is his, for me, has served as a, a mentor a, um, and has become a really close friend. Um, and this was prior to my entering the Jesuits. Um, and stay in close communication with him. And, and in the last several years, I've had the, pos- I've had the chance to, to go back um, and be there on, for a couple of weeks with him. Uh, most recently, at the last year in December, so December 2016, the radio station celebrated its um, 60th anniversary. So I was there at present and helping out with, with those celebrations. His uh, tweets recently have been... Uh concerning about the situation that he's in. Uh, what have you heard? What's the latest? Yeah, the just the other day, um, Padre Melo, along with a few other people who, uh, on this anonymous flyer that you mentioned, there are about eight people, uh, nine in total. So Padre Melo and eight others, uh, mainly from the El Progreso area where Melo uh, lives and works. Um, and they were uh, signaled out on this on this flyer um, accusing them as, of, of various things. Um, so he and a few of them went to the prosecutor's office and have uh, brought it up with human rights uh, officials from the government. You know, one saying that, like, like there's an obligation on the state to protect us and to put in protective measures and ensure that, um, you know, we as, as Honduran citizens, um, especially people who are very vocal and critical of the current government, that we're protected and that, you know, our families and our lives are protected. Um, but also that they start investigating and, and figure out who's behind these anonymous flyers. I think signs seem to point to people within the government or, you know, allies of, of the current government. But, you know, Melos has also said the other day on a news outlet in Honduras that, you know, he's not sure who, who it is that's behind this. And I think that's something that's, that's very scary and very, very concerning this time. Does this flyer fall into a pattern with other behaviors that we've seen in the past in Honduras? Is this uh, part of a stepping stone to uh, harassment or assassination? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Well, I think it was maybe in May or June or July of last year. I remember reading uh, a report that Melo had wrote out, uh, written up, and talked about how in Honduras there's a progression of suppression that takes place um, particularly towards those who are critical, uh, who kind of form this quote-unquote kind of opposition, considered enemies of the state, of the government, of those current powers uh, at the and, and it starts with ignoring them. And it, then it moves on to stigmatizing them or t- trying to discredit their work. That's kind of where something like this, these flyers, which is also there was a similar one, back in the end of March of last year, part of these defamation campaigns trying to slander his name. And then the, the third step is is trying to criminalize them, so trying to bring about criminal charges that would put them in prison, and then, and then lastly, assassinating them, killing them. 
And I think the emblematic case of that in recent Honduran history is is Berta Cáceres, uh, you know, well-known, internationally known human rights environmental activist uh, with the Lenca people in Honduras, a dear friend of Melo, but she's one of, I think, uh, since 2009, since the coup in Honduras, uh, over 120 activists have been killed. In addition, there's you know, Melo, who directs Radio Progreso and Eric, the social action, Jesuit social action center in Honduras. Um, you know, Melo is not the only one who's receiving threats like these or these false accusations. Um, there's also um, many of uh, those on his staff, have, I think it's in the last several years, 16 or so have been subject to that. I know one of the members of Eric, uh, Eric, the social action center, um, is currently has to, to, hop around staying in different houses because it's not because of threats against his life and that of his family. So it's very, it's very serious. What do you think of the U.S. position here? Because um, the Secretary of State last month came out and um, said that Honduras is cooperating on uh, issues of uh, crime and, and human rights and uh, and it, they issued them uh, new funds. Uh, why is this going on at the same time that's going on? Frankly, I think for, for Hondurans, folks who like Melo and, and the various organizations, indigenous uh, groups, feminist groups, youth in Honduras, um, and also the larger international community, I think receiving that news two days after the election of Secretary Tillerson's uh, releasing of these funds uh, was kind of like a slap in the face, um, especially since all of well, all these different groups and organizations, both within Honduras as well as internationally, have been documenting um, there are serious uh, crimes being committed, and and largely at the hands of government. You know, U.S. has the for Honduras uh, or the Honduras is a, a geostrategic place for a uh, country for. Uh, for the United States, um, where you have, you know, Nicaragua to the east and El Salvador to the west, uh, Honduras continues to be a, a U.S. stronghold for, uh, you know, and um, and that's been the case since, I mean, throughout the, the 20th century, uh, now in the 21st century, U.S. has a uh, military presence in Honduras at Palmero, at the um, San Ocoto base, um, you know, the U.S. since 2009 has sent around $114 million to Honduras in, in security aid, which goes to um, the military and police forces. Many of, as we've seen in the last, you know, little over a month or so since the elections in November, 30 people have been, over 30 people have been killed um, post-elections. And uh, Melo told me other, the other day, you know, at least 15, if not more, um, are clearly at the hands of you know bullets from the uh, from the military and/or police forces. So the U.S. has a has a lot of you know military interests, but also but also business too with multinational companies that, especially since the the 2009 coup that was supported by the U.S. and Canada, uh, among other uh, nations as well. Um, these multinational companies continue to have priority in the country and and have are strongly linked with the the current president, Juan Orlando Hernandez. 
I'm talking with Matt Ipple. He's a Jesuit in formation and an MA candidate at the Jesuit University in Lima, Peru. And we're talking about the situation in Honduras. There were protests there this last weekend over the elections that took place at the end of November. Uh, the OAS wants them thrown out, but uh, the U.S. has endorsed them. And President Juan Orlando Hernandez is set to be sworn in later this month. Um what have you made of the protests and the resistance movement? Um, do you think that it has a chance of making a difference here? I'd like to think so. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful in that regard. I think it's been quite impressive to see the amount of people. There was this massive uh, mobilization and protest in, in San Pedro Sula, the second largest city in Honduras. And that's a place that I'm particularly familiar with. I mean, spent a lot of time there. Um, you know, many say that youth are characterized by you know, more like rebellious attitude or nature, whatnot. Um, you look at these are people, youth, and who are are fed up with with this and characterized by corruption and high levels of impunity, um, human rights abuses. Many a lot against youth themselves. To be a young person in Honduras is is immensely dangerous. You know, many of the thirty people who were killed, uh, several of them were, you know, young people, um, but. People who are who are disenchanted, discontent with with uh, with the current status quo, um, are looking for a different way of living, um, and uh, and don't feel feel that their their vote that was cast on on the twenty sixth of November of last year was not respected. In fact, was was you know mocked. Um, so I do. I mean, I, I, I see hope in that. I think. Uh, the current president of Honduras, Juan Orlando Hernandez, is calling for a di- national dialogue. You know, you listen to Melo and Padre Melo, and, and I don't think it, you know, and, and, and other political leaders as well, polit- you know, political leaders and, and other international organizations too, that any dialogue kind of headed by Juan Orlando Hernandez uh, would not really be a dialogue at all. I think the some of the grave, uh, large concern there is the fact that the fraud of this election in the, in the 26th of November is actually a goes back to the fact that he was even allowed to be to run for re-election, um, given that the Honduran Constitution uh, flat out prohibits that. Where I where I see hope as I see people coming together, um, youth, young and old, um, you know, indigenous from the indigenous communities of Honduras, from uh, women's groups and the Garifuna along the coast. Um, I think a, a dialogue that could actually result in um, in some a positive step forward for Honduras would involve all of those voices and, and actually prioritize those those voices voices that are are constantly uh, marginalized and suppressed and uh, overlooked. Um, and I, you know, there I think there is a definitely the intention on the part of of these civil society actors, uh, sadly, on the part of the government, that does not seem to be the case. Does the Honduran government really have the backing to stick it out if the U.S. doesn't change its position? If the U.S. Uh, sticks to its guns and says Juan Orlando Hernandez is the president, um, does that carry the day here at the end of the month? They they inaugurate him and eventually, you know, the protests dissipate. Yeah, sadly, I think, you know, they, they say in Honduras that the U.S. embassy kind of runs the show. Um, I mean, I haven't worked with anyone or had communication with folks there uh, from the U.S. embassy, but that seems to be the case. And when the U.S. came out and said uh, shortly after the 
Secretary General of the OAS called for new elections, citing uh, what you had quoted before, the fraud, the irregularities, shortly after the U.S. came out in in supporting and recognizing the Juan Orlando Hernandez as the president-elect. Um, and then you kind of see this, this uh, you know, all these other countries falling in line. Unfortunately, I'd, I think if the U.S. sticks with its its decision, uh, its, its uh, recognition of, of Juan Orlando Hernandez as president, uh, as this, the president is starting in this new term, I think that'll be, I think that'll, I think he'll stay president. You know, I think he, I don't think there will be, um, now that said, I don't know if, I don't think that means that necessarily the protest will stop. And I don't think people have that, the intention to, to, to stop protesting because of largely what I said before too, right? They feel, they feel mocked. They feel made fun of. They don't think that the current government is, it acts in the interest of all Hondurans, except, you know, rather acting, rather they act for, for a few. Do you ever uh, think about what the U.S. is doing, say, in the protests in Iran? The president comes right out and jumps on uh, the case of the protesters, and these people want accountability in Iran, and certainly these people in Honduras want uh, accountability too. But the, the, the U.S. is just on a different uh, wavelength there. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's kind of the... Oh. Like in the world, it's like the double face of uh, of U.S. foreign policy, and you know, it's uh, especially when, and, and probably so. I think you know, we talk a lot about in the United States. There's this uh, about democracy and democratic principles, and um, you know, here they in Honduras, in the case of Honduras, they seem to be completely disregarded and, and toppled over um, and thrown out, and so. Just to see kind of uh, in other parts of, of the world, the U.S. kind of backing initiatives of, um, you know, further democratization in kind of in Honduras, you get the total opposite. Um, and especially where, you know, I mean, in in the current, you know, these current protests, but also throughout the protests throughout the last several years, um, the uh, – you know, they, they use the government uses tactics of fear and intimidation. Um, and then recently, there was uh, a couple of in this recent history in the last two years, a the, there were changes made to the criminal code in Honduras that um, had has has direct effects on on social protest and opposition and in repressing them, um, and rep- repressing these forms of peaceful resistance. Um, so it's just uh, the the hypocrisy uh, of the U.S. government in this, particularly in regards to Honduras, um, and then in comparison to the rest of the world, is um, is is concerning and, and frankly is is disgusting. Well, you're in Lima, Peru. Do do people talk about this? Do they uh, do they look at this and uh, say something about it? Definitely, among Jesuits, there is. Uh, you know, folks are folks are aware. Um, you know, the letter that was sent um, at the end of at the end of last year, you know, December thirtieth, thirty first, um, came from the Jesuit Provincials of Latin America, which is the main office is here in is here in Lima. Um, so people, Jesuits, and and you know, folks we work with and work in different Jesuit works are are aware. Um, you know, Peru also has its own um, political crisis and 
um, per- political reality that has been front and, and center of uh, of the you know our attention here in the, in the recent months. Are you worried about uh, what happens with the repression in the future? I mean, if it's been bad already, could it it could get worse? I imagine if you've got to put down a stronger opposition and you've got the tools to do it, you that that is what would happen you would uh, see them the government put put people down right yeah i think i think honduras will will get worse before it gets better um and especially in regards to uh repression and um and these different tactics that are are being used by and, and not only by the military and police forces but also um, you know, coming from the government and um, and and different sectors of society, I think it's the yeah, without a doubt, I think the repression repression will get worse. And it's you know, right now we, you see in the streets in Honduras, it's tear gas, it's rubber bullets, obviously live bullets, given the thirty people who've been thirty plus people who've now been killed in, in last a little over the last month. Um, but I think the use of fear too is a real um, you know, keeps people in their homes, uh, families I talk with there that I'm close with, um, you know, many don't leave the house because of, because of that, because of the fear that, um, something could happen to them, even if that means going to the store, if that means going to work, um, you know, these levels of insecurity. And, and I don't think that, I don't think the response then is to, you know, ensure that military and police are in the streets. Frankly, I think that's, part of what increases fear uh, rather than, than the opposite, especially given that the, you know, that they respond directly to one Orlando Hernandez to the president and, you know, his close, his close officials. Matt Ipple is a Jesuit in formation in the U S Midwest province. And he is uh, currently an MA in the Jesuit university in Lima, Peru, Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about uh, Padre Mello's situation in Honduras and the situation facing Hondurans. Thanks very much for joining us, Matt. Thank you, Jerome. Glad to be here. Coming up after the break, the central role the Catholic Church is playing in the effort to get Joseph Kabila to leave office in Congo. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview from WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Before the break, we spoke about a Catholic priest in Honduras whose life was a threat by his call for new elections there. On the other side of the planet in Congo, the Catholic Church is central to an effort to get President Joseph Kabila out of office. Kabila's term expired over a year ago. On New Year's Eve, the Kinshasa Archdiocese organized protests where at least eight people were killed. The New York Times says a dozen altar boys were arrested. The Catholic News Service says at least six priests and a seminarian were among those detained. 
We're going to talk about Congo now with Kambale Musavuli. He's the national spokesperson of Friends of the Congo. Good to talk with you, Kambale. Thank you for having me. Uh, I wonder if we could peel back a year and talk about what the Catholic Church was doing and how they, they forged a deal to, to get another election um, in, in Congo when Kabila, uh, his, ta- his term in office was expiring, people were wondering what to do, and the Catholic Church uh, was really constructive. Yes, and uh, SENCO, which is almost uh, the comparison would be the uh, National Council of Churches in the United States. Uh, SENCO is the uh, conference of uh, religious leaders led really by the Catholic Church. So the political impasse that Congo faced, uh, specifically at the end of, uh, in December of 2016, where Kabila uh, was supposed to actually end his second and final term in office. Uh, given that he didn't organize elections, an ongoing uh, dialogue with the political leaders didn't come up with a tangible solution. Uh, the country was faced by a political crisis that would have sent people in the street and precipitated either violence or some um, negative outcome coming out of that political crisis. So the church took it upon itself uh, to organize uh, the political sphere by bringing together um, the current regime in the Congo of Kabila and the opposition to come up with a deal. And the deal was to give Joseph Kabila a year to organize election. And by the end of 2017, um, it was agreed that he should organize elections, uh, presidential elections in the Congo. Unfortunately, this is not what actually happened. Um, and given that did not happen, on December 31st of uh, 2017, uh, the church leaders called on the people to rise up, uh, specifically uh, calling for them uh, to attend church service on the Sunday of December 31st and right after the church service to uh, take it to the street in a very odd, um, other way, um, meaning uh, chanting, singing religious songs, praying for um peaceful transfer, transfer, but they had very specific demand that actually called for, for that protest. What they wanted to see coming out of the call for uh, rally on the outside of, uh, in the street was for Kabila to officially say that he will not run for election and also for the release of uh, political prisoners in DRC, many of whom are young Congolese, some of whom I know, like Christian Lumu or Carbon Beni, too young Congolese who've been in jail uh, since December. As they descended to the street, uh, they were faced by the military. Um, some actually, before even they hit the street, they were already faced by the military. The, the so, Catholic News Service says that 134 churches were surrounded by police and two parishes weren't even permitted to celebrate Mass that day. Um, five parishes had masses interrupted by security forces. Yes, indeed. I mean, uh, we have uh, like primary sources, contacts that we work with on the ground who share with us what actually happened, uh, that uh, in some services, uh, the doors were locked by the military and the military threw tear gas uh, in the church. In some churches, they even shot live bullets. Um, this is how we've, we have also deaths. Uh, that took uh, that happened during all all this time. But something also uh, is very interesting to also remember about the uh, premeditation of the violence against the population. 
before December 31st, since the church was already organizing, uh, the Congolese government decided to shut off text messages and uh, SMS and the Internet. Um, why is that important to point out? It, it meant that for at least a day, we could not get photos and videos of what actually unfolded on the ground. Uh, so 24 hours after the protest, the Internet uh, was uh, turned back on. And when we saw the grotesque video of uh, soldiers shooting at civilians who were unharmed, who actually not carrying uh, weapons or sticks, but carrying Bibles and chanting religious songs, being shot by bullet, it, it bewildered um, anyone who would get to see this to wonder why is the world silent around what is happening? And not only that, how is it that African leaders, are also world leaders, are continue to recognize um, a leader that the Congolese population consider illegal since he has overstayed his power and is ignoring uh, completely what the Congolese constitution is saying? And certainly lots of people look at what happened and say that this shows how determined Kabila is to stay in office. But there's also this um, other crisis in Congo in the Kasai region, where yes. this is where uh, this is an anti-government, uh, anti-Kabila kind of place in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And there is massive starvation. There's emergency food not being delivered. And uh, the statistics I've seen will make people's eye pop. Uh, 400,000 children in the region are at risk of starvation. 7.7 mm -hmm. .7 million people, 10% of the population of the country, are on the verge of starvation. And uh, this is an unbelievable kind of siege situation. And a million people displaced. Uh, this, there was a report by the World Refugee uh, Committee, I think, in, uh, in Europe, uh, in the Scandinavian country, they came out with a report saying that uh, Congo has the largest uh, number of uh, refugees in the world today. But um, specifically, when you, we're speaking about Kasai, it is also connected with that protest that took place in Kinshasa. It's the crisis, the political crisis in Congo lies on Kabila, Joseph Kabila, on willingness to organize election and stay in power beyond this uh, presidential term limit. So in the Kasei region, people rose up for the same reason. In, uh, I could go into longer details of you know, how um, a tribal chief leader in the region did not recognize the uh, government uh, in that area because they didn't organize election. But everything that unfolded there, with the people taking it to the street in the Kasai and uh, not recognizing state authority is simply because of um, Kabila not organizing the election. But what was the outcome? You did share about uh, what's happening to the people. But we also should remember that an American was killed in Congo. A brilliant American, he was a UN investigator, uh, Michael Sharp, who was investigating, uh, he, he was sent by the Security Council to investigate the situation in the region. Unfortunately, um, him and his colleague, Zaida Catalan, a Swedish woman, uh, they bo both were killed. It is believed uh, by many that the Congolese government uh, may be involved in the killing of these two UN experts uh, there. But uh, what's surprising, uh, 
given the, the deaths in the Congo, given the challenges of the people, and even given that an American citizen was killed in the Congo, the American government has not been putting pressure on the Kabila regime as they are doing with Iran, for example. Yep. Uh, and you wonder, you know, how is that possible? So that's, that's why the church leaders, they chose uh, the liberation theolo- uh, theology way of saying we are going to peaceful protest uh, the brutal regime that's facing us. But they made a call to the entire world. Their call is they want faith leaders and people of goodwill to join them in solidarity, want to shine light on the issue um, because they, uh, they're facing such a, a brutal force against them. And with exposing that, uh, they hope uh, they will be able to put enough pressure on the inside uh, to be able to have leaders who represent the will of the Congolese people. I'm talking with Kambale Musavuli. He's the national spokesperson of Friends of the Congo. We're discussing the crisis of trying to get Joseph Kabila out of office. His term ran out a year ago, and the Catholic Church organized protests on New Year's Eve that were met with brute force, and they killed and detained people. Uh, you know, the U.S. has done a couple of things. Nikki Haley went to Congo, uh, and she threatened to remove funding for the U.N. Uh, organization in Congo if uh, they didn't whip it together and, and get the election date on the table. And uh, Kabila says that at you know at the very end of December this year, he's going to have an election. And also the, the, um, the Trump administration's been active with the Magnitsky Act, and that's where they, uh, you know, have the ability to kind of attack uh, human rights abusers. And they uh, are targeting a uh, Israeli uh, uh, mineral and diamond uh, dealer who's been very active in Congos uh, the, over the years. And uh, they say he's, uh, you know, taken $1.36 billion in revenues from the Congolese people. And so so the Trump administration has been doing something. The, the U.S. administration from uh, Obama to Trump have done actions, uh, which I still believe is not commensurate, uh, commensurate to the level of violence that the people face. Um, when we're th- speaking about the Congo, we need to make sure to look at it from the context that it's a regional crisis. Right? So when we put pressure on Kabila alone, we have to also remember that we need to put pressure on Congo's neighbors Rwanda and Uganda. Why am I saying so? Human Rights Watch published a report um, last, at the end of last year um, stating that during the protests in the Congo, when the Congolese government sent military, some of these militaries are rebels, right? And Human Rights Watch documented that the Congolese government goes to Rwanda and Uganda and recruit former rebels in these countries, provide them with Congolese military uniform, embed them into the military, and these soldiers are given the order, according to Human Rights Watch, to kill civilians. Yikes. Right? So this is a public report that's available. But now, what did I speak about Rwanda and Uganda as people may look into the history of the conflict in the Congo, you will always see Rwanda and Uganda there. They have uh, negatively affected the Congo by supporting rebel groups over time. And I just mentioned the report for Human Rights Watch. The United States continued till today to provide military support to all three countries. I do not see any documentation 
that the U.S. has stopped military support to Rwanda, to Uganda, or to the Congo. But why am I mentioning that? When I see Congolese military using tear gas, not made in Congo, where they receive all this military equipment as part of U.S. military support, I should question American taxpayers on how we're using our tax money to support strong men in Africa. And that's what we call for, uh, the, uh, in, at Friends of the Congo, we call for the end of support of strong men in Africa. Uh, how much of a factor is the economic importance of uh, Congo here? Because uh, a lot of the material for our phones and our electric cars comes from Congo. It's a extremely mineral-rich area, and that is what is um, all the wheeling and dealing. It seems to be over. And this morning, I was reading the news. Uh, there was the the whole news about uh, Tesla, who just lost one of his space shuttle um, in space there. And the first thought that came in my mind was, Tesla will not be able to send a space shuttle without Congo's cobalt. Congo today is the number one producer of cobalt in the world. You cannot have an electric car, a uh, driverless, uh, driverless uh, car, or any of those electric cars without Congo's cobalt. Right now, we look at the Congo as the place where we get our raw minerals. So the policy has been to uh, prioritize profit, prioritize access to minerals, but not prioritize the lives of the people. No, we, there is this boom of technology with our cell phones, our laptops. We're benefiting from these resources. But rarely people are able to connect that the boom of technology that we have today with the conflict and the misery and the suffering of the Congolese people. So what we want to see happen, is we want to shift that dynamic, right? Well, we say, just as when we fought for apartheid, we said it wasn't okay for American businesses to benefit from apartheid. We boycotted those companies, right? We said it wasn't okay for the apartheid regime to destroy the lives of the South African people. We can do the same with the Congo today because without Congo, there will not be a phone. Without Congo, there will not be a driverless car. Without Congo, there will not be a booming technology. You couldn't even talk about machine learning. But if we benefit from the Congo, each one of us has a responsibility uh, to do something. And there are things as uh, citizens we can do, specifically for the American people, is to push our government to be on the right side of history. What What would that look like? I mentioned earlier, stop right. supporting strong men in the regional Africa and uh, making sure that our military support is not supporting those who are committing human rights abuse abroad. Kambale Musavuli is the national spokesperson of Friends of the Congo. Thanks for joining us and talking about uh, the complicated effort to get Joseph Kabila out of office in Congo and uh, economic and social justice. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we're going to hear a BBC Witness report about uh, Joseph Kabila's father and how he fought with Che Guevara in the Congo. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Before the break, we talked about Joseph Kabila, the president of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Kabila comes from a powerful family that's been involved in violent rebellions for decades. Earlier in the show, we talked about the struggles between governments and people in Central America, and one man makes an unusual connection between the two regions— Ernesto Che Guevara, the Argentine-born revolutionary who spread rebellion across Latin America, is best known for his fight in Cuba. But two years before he was assassinated in Bolivia, Che spent seven months fighting alongside Congolese rebels in Africa. One of the people Che mentored was the father of Congolese President Joseph Kabila. His name was Laurent Kabila. And Mike Lanchin looks into Che's time in Congo for the BBC program Witness. It's November 1965. A hundred or so Cuban fighters, led by Che Guevara, are gathered under the cover of darkness on the banks of Lake Tanganyika. They're waiting to board three small boats to take them across the lake, out of the Congo, and to safety in neighbouring Tanzania. Victor Dreke, an officer in the Cuban military, is Che's number two. To be totally honest, it was really hard. We were living with the feeling of abandoning the war without having won, and of leaving behind our six comrades, who died fighting. But we also felt joy that it was coming to an end. A moment to relish for the Cubans, after seven long months in the jungle, fighting alongside left-wing rebels in an unequal guerrilla war against the US-backed Congolese army. We were surrounded. There was nowhere to go. Che had decided that a group of us, those of us who were stronger, would try to break through enemy lines. But that meant moving continually and fighting without any chance of reinforcement. Then the order came to retreat. Without it, we would have been totally wiped out. The army would have finished us off. I said to Che, I'll stay behind. You go. No, he said, I'm the boss. I have to stay. I really wanted him to leave because for him, with his asthma attacks, it was going to be harder. We knew that if he stayed, he wouldn't last. But in the end, none of the Cubans stayed behind. And by daylight on that November morning, the last of Che's band of soldiers had finally left the Congo. A history of a failure is how Che would later describe in his diaries the Cubans' Congo adventure. It was all so very different from the enthusiasm with which he and Fidel Castro, the Cuban leader, had embraced the rebellion gathering pace in Africa's third largest nation. The Congo reached independence in June of 1960, immediately almost after independence, the southern part of the country seceded, it was the mining-rich Katanga province, Within months of independence, the first prime minister, Patrice Lumumba, was assassinated with the complicity of the American and Belgian governments. And half of the country relatively quickly subsided into uh, or fell under the control of rebel forces. Jason Stearns, an American author and expert on the Congo. So you'd had this assassination of a left-leaning prime minister. You had the involvement of the United States. You had what they thought was a rebellion uh, loyal to uh, a communist cause. Uh, all of these were, were good reasons for Che, che Guevara to get involved. 
it would be the Cubans' first internationalist mission. And though other left-wing leaders, among them Egypt's Colonel Nasser, tried to dissuade him, Che was undeterred. By the time that Che arrived in April of 1965, the rebellion had actually lost a lot of steam. And what was left was a pocket of rebels, you could say, in the far east of the country, in a very sort of mountainous region overlooking Lake Tanganyika, that was called to the CNL, this National Liberation Council, and led by, at that point, relatively little-known revolutionary called Laurent Kabila. And it was with this group that Che Guevara initially got in touch with and then came into the country to help. The idea was that the Cubans would teach Kabila's rebels the art of guerrilla warfare. But, says Victor Dreque, it was a huge culture shock. He recalls watching in amazement as the Congolese fighters prepared for battle by dousing themselves in magic potions that had been concocted by a witch doctor. They washed themselves in potions of herbs and pigeons and chickens before going into battle. We weren't used to that. We didn't do that. Also, we knew that we had to make trenches to defend ourselves. But the Congolese didn't want to. They say that would make the dead rise up. They were confronted with a very ramshackle force that they had, I think, relatively little internal cohesion and fought, largely speaking, on long tribal lines. Che describes, in his diaries, he describes episodes where every time they go into a new territory, they'd actually have to get uh, agreement from the local tribal chief. Che came with this internationalist sort of mindset of spreading revolution. And what he found was people were much more interested in parochial issues. There was a lot of infighting along tribal lines. Their leadership was largely speaking in, in exile, in particular, Laurent Kabila, who was supposed to be the leader, but as Che complained often, was spent more time in regional capitals, fundraising and in cocktail parties with regional leaders than actually in the rebellion. Disagreements over how to take the battle to the government forces became common, and often with disastrous results. There were heavy battles, very heavy battles, such as the one where we lost four men who were caught in ambush. We were meant to be attacking a barracks. Che wasn't happy. He thought it was too big a target and that we didn't know the area. He thought that we should be doing smaller surprise attacks. Attack, withdraw. Attack, withdraw. That was our strategy. There was the defeat in a, in a strategic town called Bendera. And then there was, uh, there was a military camp. It was a training camp. And Laurent Kabila gave this up. And he was heavily criticized by the Cubans for having given it up. So I think there were several defeats, several reasons that led for the Cubans to realize that this was not, you know, it, it didn't take them very long. They spent from April to, to November in the eastern Congo. So they only spent seven months there. And I think they realized relatively quickly this was not going to go anywhere. And they, and they effectively abandoned a sinking ship. In the epilogue to his Congo diaries, published long after his death in October 1967, Che Guevara asks himself a question that perhaps should have been posed long before. What did he and his Cuban colleagues actually have to offer the peasants of eastern Congo? Years later, author Jason Stearns asked the same question of the Congolese. 
Che Guevara as a name is something that is, is somebody who is very well known in the Congo today and speaking to many rebels or armed groups in the East today, it's a name that pops up again and again. I remember talking to probably one of the most famous warlords in the region, Lohan Kunda, back uh, in 2007 or 2008. He was playing around with the satellite phone and the welcoming message on the satellite phone was hasta la victoria siempre. And uh, I asked him about Che Guevara, and he said Che Guevara was was one of his heroes, one of his idols. But he knew they know he knew very little about Guevara's experience in the Eastern Congo. The reputation of Che in the Congo comes through his uh, fame and reputation for what he did in Cuba, not for the Congo. Most of what the Congolese know about Che is through television, through TV, and through books. It's it's uh, it's just as we know Che. Victor Dreke, Che's second-in-command in the Congo, retired from the Cuban military, and now 75 years old, he lives just outside Havana. Laurent Kabila's son Joseph is now president of the Democratic Republic of Congo. That was Mike Lanchin for the BBC programme Witness. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to meet a researcher into freshwater turtles, because think of what nature is doing right now out there in the cold. Isn't it freezing? What would you do if you were a turtle? This man has been trying to find out what turtles are doing in the frozen ponds of Canada, and we will talk about uh, turtles tomorrow on Worldview. Also, you can see Worldview live and in person next Thursday. I'll be moderating a panel discussion about artificial intelligence at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. It's January 18th at 5 p.m. From self-driving cars to autonomous weapons, the applications are almost limitless, and we are going to chat about it next Thursday at 5.30. You can go to wbez.org events for more details. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering and Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.